Welcome to the Hope in the Hard Times sermon series. I preached this series of messages back in 2012 at the Metropolitan Bible Church, shortly after I'd gone through treatments for cancer. Now in 2020, as we face hard times related to the coronavirus, we at Heritage College and Seminary are re-releasing the sermon set, along with a companion study guide. As you dig deeper into God's Word, you will receive hope in the hard times. Well, on this Thanksgiving weekend, I certainly have many, many things for which to give thanks. And as I was reflecting on that, the top of my list would just be the grace that God has given to me in Christ. What's better than that, right? Just the amazing grace that has come our way. I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for my wife and my children, my family. I'm thankful that the Lord has brought me through a couple surgeries and a bunch of radiations these past months and and helping me regain some strength. I'm really thankful for that. Thankful for you as a church family. Over these last few months, we have felt so supported and so encouraged and so prayed for by our church family here at the Met. And I'm really grateful to that. So thank you. I'm also thankful this time of year for something that is unique this time of year. And that is I'm thankful for the beauty of the trees right now. Thankful for the beauty of the trees that happened just about Thanksgiving time here in Canada. Yesterday, Linda and I were up in the Gatineau, and uh, man, it was as glorious a day as I can ever remember. The colors there, the rhapsody of uh, colors there, the crimsons, the orange, the golden leaves, it was spectacular. And as I, as I sat there, just we walked through the woods for a while, and I looked at these trees, and I thought, you know, a tree in fall colors is flaming with the glory of God. It's just a canvas of color. But one of the things that's always struck me about the glory of fall is that it's not only incredibly beautiful, it's also incredibly brief. Like in just a few days, those trees that are right now so full of color are going to be devoid of color. In just a few days, it's like the glory of October is going to be replaced by the stark gray of November. And these trees are just going to be bare and gray and stark and not nearly as beautiful. In fact, even today, underneath the beautiful fall colors in a tree, there is a darker side. A side that's much less beautiful. I was thinking about that and it hit me that we people are a lot like those trees. I mean, we come here on Sunday and we're all decked out in our fall finest and we are looking as glorious as we possibly can look. And yet, underneath, on the inside, things aren't always quite that beautiful. You see, inside, sometimes we've got our own anxieties and we've got our own attitudes and we've got our own ambitions or our addictions, and they're not very pretty. I mean, underneath, on the inside, we can have, you know, we can be harboring these petty jealousies or we could even be hiding these secret perversions. And yet on the outside, we're kind of flaming in our fall colors. But on the inside, we can have a dark side. 
Now, the Bible is quite clear is that God is committing to committed to help us look not only beautiful on the outside. In fact, he's more concerned that we are beautiful and congruent on the inside. And that's why the Bible says God is so committed to helping us deal with our dark sides. He's committed to helping you and to helping me deal with our dark sides. And one of the ways that he does that is through hard times. One of the ways that he helps us deal with our dark sides is through hard times. By allowing the hard times to blow into our lives like a cold November wind. To allowing the hard times to come whistling through our lives, uncovering us, exposing some of the things inside that we try so hard to conceal. He uses hard times to get to the dark sides. We're in a series right now here at the Met called Hope for the Hard Times. And we're looking at some of the hopeful ways that God uses hard times in our lives. We've already seen that sometimes God chooses to use hard times. Part of his plan is to help us to develop this persevering character, this strong character that has perseverance. That's one of the reasons he allows hard times in our lives. Last week, we saw that sometimes God uses hard times to move us to run to him so that we might enter a place of quietly resting in him. In the middle of everything else, he wants to teach us more about resting in him. Today, today we're going to see that God also uses hard times in our life to deal with some of the dark sides inside. We're going to do that by looking at a psalm, a psalm in the Old Testament that starts in the dark and ends in the daylight. It takes us to the dark sides and then leads us to the light. The psalm that we're going to look at this morning is Psalm 130. So I'm going to invite you, if you would join me, in Psalm 130. If you need a Bible, uh, we have some here in the sanctuary and some in the fellowship center. And the best way to find Psalms is kind of open up to the middle of your Bible. Psalms is pretty much in the middle. In the blue Bibles, it's uh, page 442. Today we're going to be in Psalm 130, which is a Psalm that helps us deal with the dark sides. So on this brilliantly glorious weekend, this Thanksgiving weekend, we can be thankful that we have a God who wants us to be glorious on the inside, and he's committed to helping us deal with the dark sides. Let me pray for us, and then we'll look at Psalm 130 together. Father, this morning, we do give thanks. We're thankful for the many blessings, the temporal blessings in our lives. We are people probably who came here fed and clothed and sheltered. We have so many things that so many in our world have very precious little of. We are people who live in a country that is glorious and free. We are people who can come to a church and worship you openly without fear of reprisal, without fear of authorities storming the doors like some of our brothers and sisters around the world have to do today. And then, Lord, we are people who've tasted the grace of God in Christ. We want to thank you for those things. And today, Lord, in an unlikely way, I want to thank you for caring enough about us to working on the inside of us, even the dark sides of us. And I'm asking that you will use your word today to do that kind of surgically precise probing of our hearts to bring us to the light. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Psalm 130 divides nicely into two halves. Verses 1 to 4 point to the heart of the problem the psalmist is going to deal with. And then verses 5 to 8 get to the heart of the solution. So he deals, first of all, with the problem, then moves to the solution. He starts in the dark and ends in the light. As I read the opening four verses, I want you to listen for the mood of the psalmist. What mood is he in as he writes? And then what mess is he in as he writes? See if you can find out the mood and the mess, okay, as I read verses 1 to 4. Follow along. Psalm 130, he says this. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. What's the mood of those verses? You know, how, how would you capture his mood as he's writing? Well, if you, if you thought about it and read it over a few times, you might say, well, there's something there about some desperation. I mean, he's crying out, right? He's going out of the depths. There's something going on in his life that's not good. It, there's an urgency. There's a desperation. There is a sense of, I need help. This is a cry. This is not a peaceful, uh, you know, everything's going well in my life. This is, oh, God, help Psalm, right? That's kind of the mood. Well, what's the mess he's in? Well, we don't know for sure, but it has something to do with his sins, right? Because in verse 3, he talks about if you kept a record of sins. Verse 2, he's crying out for mercy. So in these opening verses, the psalmist is helping us get our heads around something that's very important to remember. He's showing us what we do in hard times like this. And I would sum it up this way. These opening four verses are telling is telling us this, is that the darkness in our souls should get us crying out for forgiveness. He's kind of saying, let me tell you something I've learned. I've learned that the darkness in our souls should get us crying out for forgiveness. When you see the dark sides inside, it should compel you to start crying out, oh Lord, oh Lord, oh Lord, and you're crying out for mercy and forgiveness. The dark sides, the darkness in our souls should get us crying out for forgiveness. I mean, it's clear that this guy, the psalmist, feels in over his head. Look how he begins verse 1. Out of the depths, I cry to you. Like, I, I'm not just on level ground. God, I'm in a pit. I'm in the depths. We say, well, he's going through hard times. Well, it doesn't seem to just be hard times outside of him. It seems to be more hard times inside of him. Because look in verse 2, he cries out, for mercy. He's gone, I'm in the depths, and God, what I need from you is mercy. And it's linked somehow to his sins, because in verse 3 he says, O Lord, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? So do you get where he's doing? He's crying out, he's desperate, he needs mercy, and it's because something has gone wrong inside of him. It's because of his sins. Do you see the word sins there in the end of verse 3? If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, some translation, I think, have the word iniquity. The Hebrew word behind that has the idea of something that is bent or twisted or crooked. And when you think about it, that's a pretty good description of sin. Sin is like something that is twisted or crooked or bent. Sin is what takes the straight will of God and in the ways of God and twists them or bends them or makes them crooked. And the psalmist here 
is saying, I got something inside of me that's bent and that's twisted and that's crooked. Now, be really clear on this. The guy who's writing this is a spiritually minded man, right? He's a guy that's praying. He's writing songs to God. This is not some hardened, cynical, unbelieving guy. This is, seems to be a very sincere, God-oriented man. But he's in the depths, and he's saying, Lord, there is something inside of me that's twisted. It's like he knows God is holy God is straight and true, and yet he knows about himself that he's not, that he's crooked, that he's bent, that he's twisted. Or to put it another way, he knows that God is light. And he's aware that he has darkness inside. There is a shadow side of his soul, and he knows that, and it's driving him to cry out to God. And by the way, he's talking personally about himself, but it's bigger than himself. He knows that this same problem is in everybody. Because in verse 3, look at how he puts it. It's broader than just himself. He says, if you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? The message version of the Bible puts it this way. O Lord, who could stand a chance? That's the idea. Like, God, if you kept a list of sins, if you, if you kept a record, if you kept a tally, who among us stands a chance? Now, what's the implied answer to that question? Implied answer is like, nobody. If God keeps this record of sin, nobody stands a chance. It's like everybody, everybody, he says, everyone, all of us, we've got some things inside of us that are bent and crooked and twisted. And God, if you brought those things into the light, we'd all be forced to say we got some darkness in our souls. We have dark sides on the inside. Recently, uh, my wife Linda and I finished reading a biography of Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson, uh, the biography is called Born Again. And uh, you might remember Colson. He was called President Nixon's hatchet man. Back in the 1970s, when uh, Richard Nixon was the president of the United States, Colson was like really tight with Nixon and kind of uh, did some of his dirty work. And the book, Born Again, tells the story of Colson's fall from power, along with Richard Nixon, and Colson's tumble into grace, because through it all, he came to know Christ, even though he went to prison and has lived the, the last decades serving the Lord by serving prisoners. It's, a, it's an amazing story. But here's fascinating. He was so close to President Nixon, and he talks a lot about Nixon. He, he loved Nixon. He was loyal to Nixon. And he says that in public, President Nixon was a commanding figure. He was a, a world leader. He would go to China and opened up doors into China. He was, he was seen as a very powerful and, and competent man. But behind the scenes, behind closed doors, there was a shadow side of Richard Nixon. And it all came to light through the White House tapes. Remember the story of those? President Nixon and his team secretly installed tape recorders in rooms in the White House, and they recorded conversations, surreptitiously recorded. Well, it came back to bite him because during the Watergate trials, the judge demanded that transcripts of those tapes be submitted and ultimately were made public. And the transcripts showed a shadow side, a darker side of President Nixon. As people read the transcripts of these tapes, 
they realized that President Nixon could be very petty and he could be very profane. His language was just horrible at times. And at times he could be ruthless or he could be arrogant. And suddenly this man who had this public persona of world leader was shown to have a shadow side. And it was embarrassing. Now, it's really easy for us to all, you know, kind of shake our heads and go, boy, that Richard Nixon just shows you about politicians. You know, yeah, 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 yeah. We go on about that. But our psalmist in verse 3 is reminding us that it's not just a problem for a few people. He says, Lord, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? God, if you made a recording and if you published the transcripts of all of our secret thoughts and all of our private words, and all of our covert little actions. If that happened to you, if God kept the record and made it public of all your secret thoughts, all your private words, all your covert actions, how would you feel about that? See, I, I don't want that to happen. In fact, most of us spend a good deal of our energy trying to make sure certain parts of our life don't come to light. We've got these shadow sides, and sometimes we're aware of them, at least vaguely, or we kind of think they're down there. We don't really want to look too hard. We just try to cover things up. But here's the deal. God wants to deal with the things we try to conceal. Right? God is committed and he wants to deal with the things we try to conceal. He wants to heal the very things we try to hide. And you know how he often gets to those things? Through hard times. He allows hard times to come into our life that rock our world and expose some of the stuff that's in there that we've done so well at kind of hiding, concealing. We have our own little Watergate meltdowns. Thankfully, it's not in the public press, but it's in our little world, and God is trying to bring to light some stuff on the inside that we've been working really hard to hide. You know, over these last seven months, as I've been going through all this treatment, one of the lessons that I have been learning is that God has been trying to deal with some of the shadow side of me. I kept a journal through this whole seven, eight-month journey I've been on. And in early March, I was reading my journal uh, recently, and in early March, there was a day when I came face to face with some dark sides in my soul. It's not the only day before or since, but on this one day, it was a, it was a significant day. You see, what had happened, I was laying flat on my back, recovering from my first surgery, and I had a lot of time. I had time to think, I had time to pray, I had time to read, I had time to reflect. And I, as I had that quiet rest, it's almost like God allowed me to start seeing some things that I would rush by when life was going at full speed. And I remember a Thursday in March when I laid on my bed and it just suddenly began to come clear. I thought, you know, there are some things in my life that God has been showing me. I, I could see that there were ways that I had subtly drifted from my devotion to Jesus. Even though I'm a pastor, there were ways I could see, like, I used to love him more in these ways than I, than I do recently. I've drifted from some things. And then I saw ways that I had shifted from a passion that I've always had for helping people who don't yet know Christ hear about him. I used to really just be passionate about that. That was my life. And I realized that somehow I'd shifted from that. 
And that was no longer very important to me, at least if you looked at my schedule and how I was living. And then I saw that I had slipped into some attitudes that would have to be called self-centered rather than Christ-centered or other-centered. And on one Thursday as I was laying there, it was like I was seeing all of this. And you know what I did? I did what the psalmist did. I mean, I just, I started to cry out to the Lord. I mean, out of the depths, I cry out to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Let me ask you a question here. Do you think that God could possibly be trying to use some of the hard times in your life right now to reveal some things, to help bring to light some things that you have carefully and consistently tried to push out of your view? Do you think that God could be trying to unearth some things because he loves you so much, he wants you beautiful on the inside as well as the out? Do you think that God could have an agenda to show you some shadow sides in your own soul by allowing you to go through a winter time in your life? Could he be up to that? And if he is, are you willing to let him? Are you willing to get rid of the cover-up and just say, God, are you trying to get to something in my life? You say, you say to me, well, Pastor Rick, I don't know if I can handle that. I already got enough in my life. I'm already going through a hard time. And now if I start looking at myself and seeing some other things, it's going to drive me over the edge. I mean, I'll be driven to despair. And I'd say to you, no, 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 that's not God's heart. He just wants you to drive you to cry out for forgiveness because that's where the psalmist goes. Look at it with verse three and four. He says, oh Lord, if you kept a record of sins, who could stand? But look where he goes in verse four. But with you, there is forgiveness and therefore you are feared. You see, the darkness in our souls should get us crying out for forgiveness We cry out, but it's not just a a futile and hopeless cry. We say, Lord, we're asking for forgiveness. We're asking for mercy. The psalmist is convinced that with God, there is forgiveness. He's gone, Lord, I know what I'm seeing in me and I don't like it. But Lord, with you, there is forgiveness. And then he says, therefore, you are feared. Isn't that interesting? You are feared. You go, why would you say God is feared? Because he's (coughs) forgiven. Because he's forgiving. Wouldn't you say, therefore, you are loved because you forgive? Why does he say, therefore, you are feared? I think it's important to remember that the kind of fear he's talking about is not a fear that makes you run away from God. After all, he's praying, right? He's coming closer to God. It's the kind of fear that makes you stand in awe of God. Like when you start to realize that God, who knows everything about you, is willing to forgive you, it's like you step back and you go, What kind of God are you? How could you do that? And there's this reverence, this holy wonder that comes over your life. You see, the darkness in our soul should get us crying out for forgiveness because when it does, when we start crying out forgiveness, seeing the dark sides inside, then something happens. Then a change begins to happen. And that's what happens in our psalm. You see, beginning with verse 5 to verse 8, the tone changes. This psalm begins in the dark, verses 1 to 4. He's in the depths. He's saying, I need mercy. I'm crying out. Oh, God, forgive me. And then all of a sudden, in verse 5 to 8, it moves towards the light. And suddenly, there is the daybreak of hope. In fact, the word hope shows up two times in verses 5 to 8. Listen as I read. Watch for the word hope. 
I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I put my hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning, more than the watchmen wait for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. See, verses 1 to 4 says the darkness in our souls should get us crying out for forgiveness. But then verses 5 to 8 tell us this. The daybreak of God's redemption helps us hang on to hope. It's like when you start getting the, the first gleams of the sunrise, the daybreak of God's redemption, it gives you hope. In the middle of the darkness of your own soul, you find you're hanging on to hope. The daybreak of God's redemption helps us hang on to hope. You see, in verse 5, the psalmist says, he just cried out for forgiveness, and now he says, oh, so I'm going to wait on the Lord. I'm going to wait for him to give me mercy. I'm going to wait for him to bring his forgiveness. I'm going to wait for him to pull me out of the depths, to deal with the darkness in my soul. And as I wait for his help, his deliverance, his forgiveness, I'm waiting in hope. This is a hopeful waiting. I mean, I, I, I'm hanging on to hope because I know what God is like. I'm, I'm waiting for his help, and I'm waiting in hope. In fact, he wants you to know how he's feeling right now, so he gives you a word picture that describes what it's like to wait in hope for God to pull you out of the depths. Do you see that in verse 6? You see the word picture. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchmen wait for the morning, more than the watchmen wait for the morning. You said, hey, he repeated himself there. Well, he did because that's one of the ways in Hebrew poetry you make your point stronger. It's like underlining it, right? He's going, here's what I want you to get. I'm waiting on God to pull me out of the depths. I'm waiting for his mercy. I'm waiting for his deliverance. And I'm waiting like a watchman waits for the morning. Now, that may not mean a lot to you unless you worked as a night watchman, but uh, back in his day, that would be a pretty easy picture to wrap your heart around. Uh, picture it. The cities back in uh, ancient times were often walled little communities. And uh, they were walled because they knew that at any moment, one of the other communities, one of the neighboring tribes or countries could come swooping in and attack them. And so they built walls around their cities, and they posted watchmen on their walls. Makes sense, right? Now imagine you are assigned to be one of the watchmen on the walls. In daylight hours, it's not so bad. You can see for miles. But now the sun goes down, and it's dark, and you're the watchman on the walls. How's that feeling? It's deathly quiet. The people in the town are sleeping, and they are counting on you. And you are standing on the walls, and you're looking out on the edges, and you're looking for any indication. You're listening to try to say, am I hearing any rustling? Man, we could get attacked tonight by the Moabites, or the Amalekites, or the Jebusites, or the Mosquito Bites, or any of those ites there. I mean, you're not sure who's coming, but you don't want them to come, and you know that it's on your head. Like, if you don't warn the people, they're toast, and so you're the watchman on the walls. It's pitch black. You don't have a digital watch. You, don't, you haven't heard on CFRA what time sunrise is tomorrow. So you, you just know that it's dark, and you're waiting for what? Daylight, right? Here's my question. 
How do you feel as you wait? What's going on in your soul? What are you feeling as you're the watchman on the walls? Well, probably a bunch of things, but I'll bet you're feeling at least these two things. On one hand, you're feeling this huge amount of concern, right? It's like, this is, this is life or death. There's a lot on the line here. And so you are alert if there's a sense of concern. On the other side, you have this sense of confidence because you know that the sunrise is going to come. Every day of your life, the sun has come up. Every day of your life, darkness has given way to dawn. So you're on the wall and you know, I don't know when it's coming, but suddenly that sun's going to come. There is this confidence. Now, our psalmist says this, I'm in the depths. It's like pitch black where I am. I'm seeing a lot of darkness in my soul and I'm crying out to God for mercy and I'm waiting for him to come and rescue me, deliver me, forgive me. And as I wait, I've got hope. Oh yes, I've got some concern. I mean, this is a big deal. I, gotta, I need help. But I got confidence because the sun's going to rise. In fact, God is more faithful than the sunrise. And I'm waiting on him for his help, but I'm like the watchman on the walls. I am waiting for morning, and I know morning is going to come. I know that just like the sun will come through, God will come through. And he will take me out of the depths, and he will forgive me, and he will deal with the stuff inside of me that I'm not proud of. And, and how can he be so sure that the sunrise is going to come, daybreak is going to come? He tells you in verses 7 and 8, verses 7 and 8, he tells you two reasons he is confident that God is going to hear his prayer and answer him. Look at it, verse 7 and 8. Right after he talks about waiting as a watchman for the morning, verse 7, he says this, O Israel, put your hope in the Lord. So he's so confident, he's telling other people now. He's like, I've learned this. I want to pass this on to you. Israel, all you folks, listen, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. He gives you two reasons why he is completely convinced that God will hear his prayer and come through. And you can hang on to the same two reasons for hope. First one is this. Why do you hope that God will pull you out of the depths and help you when you cry out for mercy? You hope, first of all, because God has unfailing love, right? Did you see it? Verse 7, our hope is based on God's unfailing love. Look at it, verse 7, for with the Lord is unfailing love. Hey, listen to this for a second. The Hebrew word for unfailing love is the word chesed. It's one of the most important Hebrew words in all the Old Testament, chesed. It, it's a word that's hard to bring into English. In fact, some of the translations use the word mercy. Some translations use the word um, loyal love or faithful love or loving kindness or steadfast love. It's hard to actually capture it in just an English phrase. But essentially, it means a love that God has that is rooted in his character and linked to his covenants. Like this love is based on who God is and what God says on his person and on his promises. And the psalmist says, with the Lord is unfailing love. Like, like this love that is so strong because it's rooted in who God is and it's linked to what God says, his promises. Now, here's why that's so important. When you face the dark sides of your soul, one of the things you've got to hang on to is that God could still love you. Right? 
Because there are times when you will feel unlovable. There are times when you see some of the darkness in your soul, it will so drive you to despair. You'll think, good night, I've been a Christian for 30 years. And I still got this going on inside of me? How, how many times have I asked God for forgiveness for this? And I'm still wrestling with it. And you will be tempted to think that maybe, maybe you've crossed this line and God has said, enough already. We, we've, we've seen this too many times and I'm done with you. See, at those times, if you aren't convinced that God has unfailing love, you're going to be convinced that you're just unlovable. Many years ago, I was reading a book called Knowing God by J.I. Packer. And there is a section of his book about God's love that has nourished my soul for decades. And I come back to it again and again. Let, let me read it to you. Listen to what Packer writes. This, this, this is just, this anchors my soul. Packer writes this, There is unspeakable comfort in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. There is tremendous relief in knowing that his love towards me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge about the worst in me, so that now no new discovery can disillusion him about me in the way I am so often disillusioned about myself. Did you get that? His love is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst in me, so that now no new discovery about me can disillusion him about me in the way I'm so often disillusioned about myself. And then he goes on to say this, There is certainly great cause for humility in the thought that he sees in me more twisted things than my fellow humans see. And he sees more corruption in me than I see in myself. But there is, however, equally great incentive to worship and love God in the thought that for some unfathomable reason, he wants me as his friend. And he desires to be my friend. And he has given his son to die for me in order to realize this purpose. Isn't that amazing? God sees more in me than I see in myself. He sees more than other people see, but for some unfathomable reason, he wants me as his friend. It's because of his unfailing love. And that's the reason the psalmist says, I'm finding daybreak of hope. I come back and I go, God's love is unfailing. It's not like my love. Unfailing love. That's the first one. But there's a second thing that he says in verse 7. A second reason for hope. Did you see it? Look at it with me. Verse 7. Put your hope in the Lord. Why? For with the Lord is unfailing love. There's our first thing. Secondly, and with him is full redemption. Oh, there's the second thing. Why do you hang on to hope? Because of, with God, there is full redemption. Not partial redemption. Not a little bit of redemption. But full redemption. Full redemption. The, the Hebrew word for redemption has the idea of rescue and release. It has this idea of finding somebody who's in slavery or in bondage or in danger and pulling them out, often through the payment of a price. Like if you redeemed a slave from slavery, you often had to buy him. You had to pay something. Now the psalmist is saying this, I feel like a slave. I've got some things inside of me. I've got some dark sides inside of me. And the stark reality about dark sides is that we don't get rid of them easy. And he says, I, I, I sometimes think, how am I ever going to get out of this and then he remembers, but with the Lord, there is full redemption. He can come and deliver. He can come and rescue me. 
In fact, verse 8, look at how he says it in verse 8. He himself will redeem Israel. He himself. The psalmist is saying, God himself will come and rescue me. He himself. In the Hebrew text, it even emphasizes that through adding the pronoun. He himself. God himself is going to be my redeemer. Now, when the psalmist wrote that, I, I doubt he had a full understanding of all that that would mean. For it would be centuries later when that would literally come true. God himself would redeem. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4 and 5 points us to the time when God moved to bring full redemption. Listen to this, Galatians 4, 4. But in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Why did Jesus come to earth? Because God himself was going to redeem his people. That's why he came, right? To redeem them. And then in Ephesians 1.7, it says this about Jesus. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood. And it points us to the fact that when Jesus came, he didn't just come to redeem us through his life. He came to redeem us through his death, through his blood. And what Jesus came to do was to buy your deliverance, to buy your freedom and to, to make a way to pull you out of the depths of the darkness of your own soul. And he did it by giving himself. He literally, God himself, redeemed. And with him, there is full redemption. And when you come to understand that there is this unfailing love, a love that God never lets to quit, and there is this full redemption provided for you in Jesus, then when he shows you the dark sides of your soul, you don't despair. What you do is you run to the cross. You come there, first of all, when you ask him to be your savior. And then you go back and back and back again as he keeps showing you things in your life that are dark. On that Thursday in March, when I was kind of facing some of the dark sides of my soul, I was laying on my bed trying to get better from this surgery, and I felt God was doing surgery on my heart. And I cried out for mercy, and I ran to the cross in my heart. And immediately, it was kind of like the light started to shine in. And I had this holy sense of wonder that God would love me and forgive me. And change me. And deliver me. And grow me. And he was using some hard times to get to the heart of the matter. You see, I started by talking about trees today. I love trees and their fall colors, but really the most beautiful tree ever is a tree that's very stark. Just has kind of the, the trunk and one crossbeam. And as much as I love the trees in the Gatineau, when they're arrayed in their fall rhapsody, this is the beautiful tree. Because it reminds me of the fact that God's unfailing love and full redemption came in Jesus. So today, if you're here and God is dealing with some darkness in your soul, can I tell you where you need to go? You need to go to the cross. And you cry out to him and you hang on to hope that with him is unfailing love and full redemption. I want to give you a moment just to, to talk to the Lord. I'm going to ask our worship team to come.
And would you just be honest enough with God to let him, maybe, maybe he's been trying to point out to you some of the darkness that still is lingering in your soul. Would you let him reveal that, expose that? Would you not try to run from that? Would you name it? Would you confess it? Would you own it? And then would you bring it humbly to the cross and say, Jesus, you are the one who comes to me with unfailing love and full redemption. And I'm waiting in hope for you. Change me. Forgive me. Why don't you talk to him? And then we'll have some music for you to listen to and sing. Let's pray. Thanks for listening. If you'd like more information about online courses at Heritage College and Seminary, visit our website at discoverheritage.ca or visit our personal website at rickandlindareed.com.